3: Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to uh, African Dialogue. And remember, you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. That's if you're listening to us on shortwave on DSTV on Channel 902. Well, today we're looking at uh, South Africa. Once again, the Department of Mineral Resources in the country has granted three prospecting rights to private companies for seabed mining in South Africa's exclusive economic zone we're going to find out what that means so let's move on quickly and get our uh, news from ann musa
4: In the headlines, Côte d'Ivoire's incumbent President Alassane Ouattara secures a second term in office. South Africa's ruling ANC party criticised for inviting Hamas leadership to the country and natural disasters kill half a million people in Asia and the Pacific. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Côte d'Ivoire's incumbent president, Alassane Ouattara, has won a second five-year term in office. The Electoral Commission says Ouattara garnered 83% of the vote. Opposition candidate Pascal Gesan got 9%. The vote was judged to be peaceful and transparent by observers. The presidential vote was the first since the 2010 contest in which Ouattara defeated then-President Laurent Bagbo, his refusal to step aside sparked month of violence that killed thousands of people. At least 12 people have been killed after a helicopter carrying. The commanders of the Tripoli-based government was shot down by rival militants. The helicopter was reportedly returning to the capital when it was hit by anti-aircraft fire and crashed into the sea near Almaya. The helicopter was transporting 23 people. Libya's caught in a conflict involving two rival governments based respectively in the capital Tripoli and in the eastern Benghazi. A few opposition parties in South Africa have criticised the ruling ANC for inviting and meeting with the leadership of Hamas in the country last week. The parties say this contradicts government's official position on the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine. They've told the media and parliament that government must not take sides in the matter. In September, all parties were part of a fact-finding mission to Israel and Palestine. Leader of the opposition ACDP, Kenneth Mishwe.
1: Consonant with South Africa's policy, in all our discussions, we advocated a two-state solution. It was clear to us that the conflict carries the potential to erupt into a world war if not handled carefully. Taking sides at this point would be irresponsible and dangerous, and would certainly hinder peaceful resolution. We return to South Africa with a deeper understanding of the aspirations of both sides and the obstacles to an equitable solution.
4: ANC spokesperson Zizi Kotwa ever says the meeting with Hamas is part of the ANC's attempts to unite various factions in Palestine. We've been
5: meeting with everybody in Palestine with the hope that we can unite them and therefore the
6: invite to Hamas was part, part of the process to pay our solidarity as part of our solidarity campaign to help to unite different factions in Palestine. But if different parties, such as IFP, ACTP,
5: are complaining about about our role and the fact that we invited Hamas, clearly they don't
6: understand international solidarity
4: and finally, natural disasters have killed half a million people in Asia and the Pacific over the past decade, this according to a United Nations report. The majority of these incidents are also cross border such as the earthquake in Afghanistan on Monday, which also affected Pakistan and other neighboring countries. The report says achieving sustainable development will be difficult in the re- if the region does not address these risks. DNP reports. Asia-Pacific is the most disaster-prone region in the world, and events are becoming larger, more frequent and more intense, according to the report. During the past decade, the region was struck by 1,625 disasters, representing more than 40% of the global total. Furthermore, more than 1.4 billion people were affected by these incidents, while half a million others lost their lives. However, the study says these figures are gross underestimates as there is no standardized methodology for collecting disaster statistics. Recapping the top stories, Cote d'Ivoire's incumbent president Alassane Ouattara secures a second term in office. South Africa's ruling ANC party criticised for inviting Hamas leadership to the country and natural disasters kill half a million people in Asia and the Pacific.
3: Thank you to Anne Moussa for that news update there. We really appreciate her and uh, her time here in Channel Africa. She's one of the best indeed in the business. Remember, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on DSTV, we're on Channel 902. That's Channel 902. I'm Benjamin Mushatama, And if you're listening to us on our websites, it's www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're looking at the Department of Mineral Resources in South Africa, granting three prospecting rights to private companies for seabed mining in South Africa's exclusive economic zone. Now, together, these prospective areas totally, uh, rather have total approximately 10% of our exclusive economic zone in the country. And this is actually quite 150,000 square kilometers. Now, deep sea mining is a relatively new mineral mineral retrieval process that takes place on the ocean floor. Today on the show, we'll be looking at this development in South Africa and look at the environmental and economic implications of seabed mining. What does this mean? It was new for me when I heard about it, so I'm really interested to find out about it and what is the process of seabed mining and what entails this particular kind of mining. But on the line, we've got Sol Roo, who is the legal campaigner in the mining program of the Center for Environmental Rights. we also I have Dr. Johan Augustine, who's the Secretary of the South African Deep Sea Trolling Industry Association. Thank you both for joining us in our program. Let me start with you, Saul. Thank you for joining us in our program. Tell us a little bit more about what seabed mining is.
5: Hi, Benjamin. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, so, essentially, uh, there are different categories of seabed mining, but what we're we speaking about here in South Africa is marine phosphate mining. And particularly, if the the prospecting rights are converted into a mining right, it will be a type of um, mining called bulk marine sediment mining. Now, this is a highly novel and and new and untested uh, 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 mining practice. Um, It hasn't been tested anywhere in the world. Um, So, And essentially, there are are a lot of, of... Potential impacts. So we we know very little about this type of practice, but initial impact studies suggest that bulk marine sediment mining could have severe and irreversible impacts on marine ecosystems and associated fishery resources. Um, So the type of technology used in bulk marine sediment mining is called something, it's called trailing suction hopper dredging. Now, this involves dredging and removing sediment from the sea floor at quite an alarming rate. So, on, in uh, specific project proposals, they suggest that they can remove up to 5.5 million tonnes of sediment per annum per year. Now, the problem with this is that um, our sea floor is. Uh, extremely fragile and complex and diverse, and it it, it, um, it supports these rich communities of plants and animals, animal life in something called the bentos layer, and the seabed actually is the building blocks of, of marine ecosystems in general, um, and uh, particularly for fisheries, which I think Johan will explain, um, they, they provide... Uh, 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 the sea that provides areas for spawning and feeding and um, and breeding for for fish species, many of which are very uh, uh, commercially important. Now apart from just this complete removal of the seed of the seabed and that sediment layer um you get uh, all the sediment is pumped or suctioned up to a to a vessel um and then there's a kind of filtration process and the rest of it's just released back into the water and this creates this giant plume of, of 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 sediment and fine particulates and excess water and this just kind of moves far beyond the the actual mining block, where where the mining takes place. And this kind of settles down and and it buries and smothers um, uh, 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 marine habitats, seabed habitats. Now, we've just had these initial impact studies from a range of different countries that have um, investigated or had proposals for similar, similar sort of operations. And just some of the impacts, for example, is this direct destruction of of, of um, uh, these seabed habitats that, that play very vital um, roles in, in, in ecosystem services. And then secondly, I mean, our seabed also stores, like, vast quantities of... Um, of, of safely toxic and hazardous substances, so're safely locked into the sea floor, so they' radioactive materials methane, hydrogen sulfide now, a lot of fears from these impact studies is that the direct disturbance of the of the seabed can release the, these substances now, just for example, if you have a large release of heavy metals, um, that heavy metal toxicity would would first of all accumulate in fish, and then it would go up the food chain. So that would really just have a whole range of of of, of impacts. And then I think the impacts go kind of far greater. So it reduces the light penetration. It prevents um, light and from from reaching the, the kind of seafloor plants. Uh, prevents photosynthesis. You have a. Uh, 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 depletion of oxygen, and a range of other very significant impacts. But at the moment, there's just so little known about this practice, and there's also uh, the initial studies say that there's very little uh, uh, management um, uh, techniques or safety mechanisms that you can put in place to prevent these harmful impacts.
3: Mm, very interesting indeed, and I think that you are very descriptive in terms of the process and also how it can actually impact the environment. But let me move on to you, Dr. Johann Augustine. Um Because yeah, looking at the other research, I, I was actually looking for a while with the last Two days I was trying to figure out what seabed mining is, and I don't know how many times I googled advantages of seabed mining, or I couldn't find much. I really couldn't find much. The only thing that I could find, which is an advantage, is the fact that there are rich concentrations of gold, copper, and silver under seabed, and they're out of reach. And that's the only thing that we know in other forms of minerals uh, that we can actually have under seabed. But it seems like there isn't much else that's very positive about this form of mining?
2: Well, yes, obviously there are many different kinds of minerals that are, that are now becoming accessible to seabed mining with the new technology that saw described. Um, Phosphates is just one of those, but it is one that requires this type of trailing suction hopper dredge technology which ob- obviously has very large impact and um, the, the problem from the industry point of view the fishing industry point of view is that these concentrations of of um, phosphates are in areas that also coincide with key fishing areas phosphates um, mm. deposits arose mm. as a result of the um, settlement of biological material over millions of years mm. in areas where there's high productivity. So it follows that those same areas are still areas of high productivity today in terms of fishing. So our, our problem is that we have a very specific trawl footprint, we call it, an area where we operate mm. fishing activities using trawler, trawlers and trawl nets. That area is, has been ring fenced. It's very specific. And it is completely overlapped by these areas that have been set aside for prospecting for phosphates. There's something like 150,000 square kilometers of mm-hmm. South African shelf area that has been designated for, for exploration. Now, we do know that it's unlikely that this entire area is going to be mined. Mm. But, and in fact, um, operators that we've spoken to have been at pains to tell us it's actually a very small area that ultimately would be mined. Mm. But that small area, whatever it is, <clears throat> is very likely to be right in our primary fishing zones. Cause that's, that's where the highest productivity is, as I
5: said earlier.
3: Well, I quickly have to go to a break. We'll come back and unpack that. Uh, This particular uh, rights that the Department of Mineral Resources of South Africa has granted, where is that particular phase of this this particular development where we are right now? We try getting hold of the Department of Mineral Resources. They're willing, but they said there were other meetings that were holding them back to contribute to this particular conversation. But, hey, if you want to find out more about what we're talking about or you have some comments to make, let us know, plus277. 96957930 seven, seven, nine, nine, uh, nine, +27796957930 uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back after this
1: Welcome to Africa. Get to know Channel
4: Africa and all the people who bring news, views, and great African entertainment. Bonjour
2: you
1: can now catch
4: Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bokeh, Channel
3: 902. Channel Africa
4: the voice of the African Renaissance.
3: You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama. Today we're looking at the issue of seabed mining in South Africa's exclusive economic zone. A lot of concerns that are coming from both of our guests of this particular um, departmental decision that was made from the mineral resources in South Africa that has granted three prospecting rights to private companies for seabed mining in South Africa's exclusive zone and it seems like it's a process that is very delicate and also not much is known about this particular process in itself. Coming back to you Soul, in terms of where we are with this uh, particular uh, process I know that it's already been granted uh, these particularized these private companies do we know who the private other companies are and do we know when they will start operating
5: um, yes thank you Benjamin so the three companies are green flash trading 251 um, and green flash trading 257 now these are virtually the same companies in terms of shareholdings and a range of other um, uh, 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 so, so, these are virtually the same company, and then there's a second company called Diamond Fields International, which is a Toronto-based Canadian company. Now, um, as I said, these prospecting rights were granted in 2012 and 2014. So, um, uh, and prospecting rights are, are granted for a period of five years. So, probably 2017 and 2019 would be when they would be converted into into mining rights, if they are converted into mining rights. Now, um, there are also a number of other indications that the DMR is is intending to uh, develop a seabed mining industry, and that includes the kind of announcement of a seabed mining roadmap and a, 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 a range of media releases to, that allude to DMR's intentions. Um, now, from our side, there are just considerable gaps in, in, in South Africa's legal and governance framework in dealing with seabed mining. Apart from all the other risks, I mean, it's just essentially the, the, the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act does not deal with offshore mining at all. And many of the provisions in, in the Act are very difficult to translate into offshore mining, particularly in terms of things like consultation, environmental impact. Um, and then with things like compliance monitoring enforcement, there's Absolutely no capacity for um, for for uh, uh, compliance monitoring in DMR for offshore environments. So we just think that a kind of an unregulated bulk marine sediment mining industry in South Africa could have disastrous impacts, and including cumulative impacts. Um, and I think just, uh, as, a, uh, just as a comparison, sure. because of these huge risks and the lack of knowledge, um, other countries that have received similar applications for this type of technology... They've either refused consent or placed a moratorium on on marine phosphate mining or established permanent bans in certain areas from this type of operation. And these include New Zealand, Australia, and our neighbor Namibia. Now, it's it's quite worrying as well in this case because we, South Africa, have signed the Benguela Current Convention. And this requires us to work with our neighbors in Angola and Namibia to, to, to in the shared management of our resources. Now, if South mm-hmm. Africa were to allow this mining activity to go ahead when Namibia has taken a moratorium on it, it would just be hugely irresponsible. And there are a range of other regional and in, international treaties, um, including the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Law of the Seas, that mm-hmm. also uh, require us to, to have a responsible approach. So I think at this stage, um, with the prospecting rights and with the intention to to to, to develop this seabed mining industry, I think it's very worrying. It's a it's a, it's a concern to a lot of um, industry stakeholders and civil society, and I think also uh, one of our partners in in the, the coalition we've established. It's called the Our Seabed mm-hmm. Coalition. Mm-hmm. Is um, a, 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 Masi Fondisa Development Trust. Now, they represent small-scale fishers. And I think in in South Africa, we support around, there are around 8,000 small-scale fishers. And in the Western Cape, there's around 1,700. Now, small-scale fishers directly rely on healthy ecosystems for food security, for income, for livelihood. And I think uh, this will have huge impacts on fish stock and and the 44 coastal communities that are within the Western Cape. So I think um, at this stage
3: it's it's very worrying. Sure, and also let's look at this process of moving forward, uh, because it seems like it's at an advanced stage right now, as you highlight. Uh, uh, so uh, let me take this to Dr. Johan Augustine. I know there was uh, really a movement of uh, various environmental organisations uh, which are really working within this particular area of. Uh, uh, maybe fishing and also different parts of uh, uh, industries in terms of how the ocean is utilized. Um, In terms of this coalition, tell us a little bit about this coalition that has already been established. It's now called the Safeguard Our Seabed Coalition. They've made a request and sent a letter uh, forwarded to the, the mineral resources minister. Tell us a little bit about that process. Has there been any response from the ministry? And also, what is that letter actually highlighting?
2: Uh, Benjamin, I think uh, it would be better if Saul responded to that question because we are just a stakeholder in in the coalition, whereas he has been driving these processes. So I I would uh, defer to him to talk more about that process. Uh, uh, Sure.
5: um, Thanks Johan. So, so uh, as a result of, con- of these concerns we established the Safeguard Our Seabed Coalition in, in, in early 2015, early this year. And to date it includes um, uh, fishing industry represented by Fish SA, the Responsible Fisheries Alliance and um, um and then uh, WWFSA, BirdLife South Africa and the Center for Environmental Rights and Massey Development Trust that represents the interests of small-scale fishers um, and, and as you said, we have um, we addressed a letter on behalf of the coalition to the Department of Mineral Resources in July, the end of July, and to date we have not received a response. And I mean, I think there are a number of other indications. Um, so, for example, when one of these uh, prospecting rights um, were granted to, to a company called, called Green Flash, um, the Center for Environmental Rights on behalf of WWF mm. Mm. Um, submitted an uh, access to information request to DMR just in order to get more information on, on DMR's broader policy on on seabed mining. Um, and essentially DMR re- refused to provide any information and they said that it would it would unreasonably divert the resources of the public body to give us this information and then we appealed this decision and we just didn't get a response. So there's been a, a complete lack of engagement with industry and civil society from DMR on this issue um, and I think what the letter we, we addressed said essentially is it, it set out the impacts, our concerns potential impacts to fishing industry. Um, and it, it suggested that we need to start a, pro- a process of establishing a moratorium on bulk marine sediment mining until at least we have proper knowledge of environmental impacts and socio-economic impacts to existing industries, um, such as fishing, sure, sure. small-scale
3: fishing. Sure. That's where I want to uh, go into, actually, what you're highlighting right now in terms of uh, that element of how it could impact other, um, you know, Uh, industries within this particular field and that takes me back uh, to uh, Dr. Augustine in terms of looking at that particular impact on fishing in terms of commercial and small scale farming because those create a bit of industry in South Africa Uh, what's going to be the impact in that regard if we see this thing moving forward
2: Benjamin you know uh, fishing activities in South Africa have been around for as long as this country has been colonized Sure. Uh, and probably long, long before that, in terms of um, small-scale fishes, indigenous peoples. Mm. So probably going back hundreds of thousands of years, even. Um, but we've had formal fishing activities for at least 350 years. The trawling industry has been operating as an industry for 120 years, sustainably. We have sustainable total-level catches for all the species, We are managing those resources very carefully. The stocks that we target, like hake, are certified under the Marine Stewardship Council as being sustainably fished. And we provide, in in total, including spin-off activities, about 100,000 jobs. In the formal sector, there's about 27,000. And in our trawling sector, there's 6,500 jobs, formal jobs, well-paid jobs, with... um, Benefits and everything. If these kinds of activities go ahead, in discussion with some of these people, it has been revealed to us that up to three square kilometres of bottom could be removed, totally removed.
3: That's concerning.
2: Per year. Now, if if you have a mining life of, let's say, 40 years for a mine, that means you're talking 120 square kilometers of bottom that is being removed. And it's basically made permanently inaccessible to fisheries in the future. So we're talking huge impacts here in many different sectors. The spin-off sectors that the fishing industry depends on, like or, or that depend on the fishing industry, rather. Mm. Uh, companies that provide equipment, boats, ships. Um, it's not going to put an end to the industry, but it's going sure. to have a huge impact, impact yeah. in many areas. And also what's um,
3: worrying about it is the fact that there's so many organizations that have come together to form this coalition. But it seems that yes. there wasn't any form of uh, consultative process with organizations that probably have great expertise in terms of uh, what's happening in the industry.
2: Isn't that worrying My for consultation you, you? has been very poor, okay. really. Yeah. I mean, it's been secretive. Sure. Meetings that were held were not properly advertised. They were not... When news were changed without notice um, all sorts of strange things happened and uh, we didn't know about this thing until we heard that prospecting license had, had been granted mm. Mm. and we hope that going forward in when the when the, the results of, of these prospecting activities become known and that there will be proper impact assessments done utilizing all the available knowledge and that all the stakeholders will be properly consulted.
6: Sure, sure. Um, it,
2: if, if it should ever go ahead, which we, we hope it will not, because of the impacts we've been talking about, it would have to be placed in areas where it has minimum, the minimum impact at least. Mm. And so, there's a, of, in, there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of um, information required to determine that. And. Of course, it has to be compatible with other activities.
3: Sure.
2: However, we do not see that uh, it could possibly be compatible the way... Upstairs
3: now Yeah, let me take a quick break, and uh, th- that's a very concerning area because transparency is very important, especially when it comes to such important uh, projects that could Absolutely. impact our environment. Hey, what are your thoughts around the issue of seabed mining? Very complex indeed, but also very important that we highlight it and we bring it to the forefront. Give us your thoughts. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. We did invite the uh, Department of Mineral Resources of South Africa. want to do a follow up to this particular conversation and actually make sure that. They participate as well on this particular issue that we're talking about. But give us your thoughts. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's our SMS number. Or you can interact with us at African Dialogue. That's at African Dialogue. You can also join us at Channel Africa 1. Those are our Twitter handles here on our program and Channel Africa. Let's take a quick break. We'll
0: be back. We would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you are in and how you listen to the station is it via shortwave, internet or satellite and what do you enjoy listening to you can sms us at plus plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or email us it's at info at channelafrica.org you can also tell us via facebook or tweet us on the handle at numerical one Or write to us at the address, P.O. Box, 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
3: Yes, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Every day we zoom into one subject matter for an hour. We actually really unpack an issue and look at context and look at uh, some of the pivotal issues surrounding a particular topic or a big story taking place on the continent. Today we're looking at this uh, issue of seabed mining in South Africa's exclusive economic zone. The Department of Mineral Resources in South Africa has granted three prospecting rights to private companies and it seems like it's one private company that was highlighted by uh, one of our guests today and you've just joined us we've got Sol Ru who's the legal campaigner in the mining program uh, of the Center for Environmental Rights we also have the secretary of the South African Deep Sea Trolling Industry Association Dr. Johan Augustine, and really looking at their concerns about this project of deep sea mining and this seems to be really um, uh, a different type of uh, mining because it's really uh, uh, for phosphate and the technology used Is said to be very much uh, very harmful to create some form of severe and irreversible impacts on marine ecosystems. And what's also concerning is that there's not much known about this type of mining, therefore, the repercussions could be even worse than estimated by our guests today. But my concern is. uh, Dr. Johan Augustine, before I go to Seoul, is you know what happens now? We seeing that this thing is unfolding. In the meanwhile, what do we do as citizens?
2: Well, I think first of all we have to heighten awareness. That's one of the reasons why the coalition was established. Sure. Uh, we need to inform people about this. It's not well known that these activities are happening. It's also not well known how these activities could impact other areas. So it's about making sure that all the stakeholders out there who could be impacted know about it, but it's also important that the general public in South Africa should be aware of these kinds of activities and what the trade-offs are. Yes, there are jobs that could be created from mining, but you don't want to just destroy more jobs than you create in the process. Mm -hmm. You do not want to have activities that um, you know, can operate for 30, 40, 50 years, create a few hundred jobs, make a few people rich, but in the process you lose other long-term sustainable industries where, you know, many tens of thousands of people are, are involved. So I think the way forward is for us to be very clear what these impacts are um, and and make sure that... We know what the trade-offs are, um, and so that there can be awareness by governments mm. and by uh, general public, and that um, if the activities are as negative as we think that they probably will be, then there needs to be action taken on perhaps future moratoriums, and that's what we're hoping for.
3: Mm. Now, come back to you, So, in terms of uh, the way forward, in terms of interacting with the Department of Mineral Resources, because I think we also have to keep that dialogue open, especially when it comes to other issues. We've got issues such as fracking. Uh, that's been another issue that's been highlighted. We know the nuclear deal has been one where people are saying, hey, this process hasn't been transparent. Now we're seeing a new trend now with this particular story. Um, how do we keep that process of openness and transparency, especially now that you need to have a dialogue Dialogue with the
5: government. Um, thanks, Benjamin. Yeah, I think it would. Uh, there are a number of processes that have to have to kind of um, happen going forward. I think, uh, uh, as Johan said, it's definitely about awareness raising. It's a very novel technology, um, and it needs proper dialogue. There needs to be proper processes of getting further information on potential impacts on on, on having a cautious approach to this type of technology. Um, And I think that that... uh, I I think DMR should be centrally involved in that, but I think um, it should also be uh, the Department of Environmental Affairs and the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries. There needs to be a dialogue between those three departments on potential impacts. Um. Um, And I think for, for... Just as Namibia in a a case, they essentially put a moratorium on on marine phosphate mining in in 2013, and a requirement of that moratorium was to um, commission a a strategic environmental assessment that would take a number of years where you could really unpack potential impacts on different industries, uh, uh, incompatibilities, and a range of other factors. Now I think that's what we need to do in South Africa, similar to the moratorium on fracking, which which led to a strategic environmental assessment. I think there's a lot of comparisons, and I think that that needs to be um, that's in terms of the coalition. That's the only sane approach to this to this type of practice. Mm. Um, I, and I mean, I think it just it just means, and, and not only that. I think there have to be dialogues um, between. South African government and the Namibian government, particularly through um, uh, the Benguela current commission and a range of other institutions and direct direct, uh, uh, country-to-country contacts with different departments in order to really, really get a shared approach for the entire um, uh, uh, Benguela large marine ecosystem. Mm. Um, And then I think just from... uh, I, I think just stakeholders from industry different industries including fishing tourism also have to come together and try and try and understand and, uh, and, and unpack potential impacts in the way forward with this type of technology hmm.
3: and also looking at seabed mining in itself i know you highlighted earlier on so that there are different forms of seabed mining but uh, yes. how has it been has it has it been a successful form of mining have we seen some positive uh, outcomes from this form of mining when it comes to other forms of minerals?
5: Um, Benjamin, as I said, this is completely untested. Sure, it, sure. It, it hasn't been done anywhere else in the world and that's why there's such huge concerns because just on the face of it, the, 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 the type of technology seems in, almost impossible to mitigate impact. It seems so destructive. So, um, and uh, just on, on benefits, I mean, we can kind of... Uh, uh, we don't have direct knowledge on on job creation or potential economic benefits that could be associated with bulk marine sediment mining. but just on the on the uh, for example, in Namibia there was a project called the Sandpiper Project, and they did a feasibility study. And they said that this operation, that would remove 5.5 million tons of sediment a year, which is a huge amount and have all these negative impacts on, on fishing industry and the marine environment, would only um, employ around 150 people on a full-time basis. And uh, because of the technical and specialist nature of this type of industry, it would, um, it would probably not be local jobs. So, I mean, I think the, contribu- the socioeconomic contribution of this type of, of, of practice is so marginal, particularly compared to um, renewable industries like, fishery, like fishing or tourism. Um, so I think that just kind of puts the comparison in in perspective. You know. uh, Benjamin, you also mentioned um, or asked
2: about other forms of mining. Of course, there is diamond mining, sure, sure. which happens in much shallower waters, that one just needs to drive up the West Coast Look at the effects of diamond mining over the past hundred years to see how incredibly destructive it's been on land mm. and just moving a little bit offshore mm. um, in the intertidal zone. Okay. Um, which of course one doesn't see but um, there have been some studies done on the recovery of those areas and they do recover after t- uh, a certain amount of time because of course in the intertidal zone is much more movement. And you do tend to find that where you've excavated, over time those areas fill in again because of the movement. But with the bulk sediment mining, which is conducted in much deeper water, it could be uh, from 100 meters Mm. and deeper, Mm. there's there's almost no movement on the bottom. So those areas take far, far longer to recover than, for example, areas that have been impacted by diamond mining.
3: Mm. Well, it it brings me back to the whole question is this necessary um, I mean it's a two 2 by two situation whereby you're looking at hey there's mineral resources there we need to go in we need to extract it's good for the economy probably that's how the government is seeing it from that economic perspective well there's another a- angle that hey we don't know the economic impact as we've highlighted uh, during this particular uh, program uh, you know is it necessary in terms of what's happening in terms of uh, the um, you know Sea, sea, sea economy, do we need to actually Embark on these kind of projects uh, You know, come back to you Sol, Or is are we sustaining uh, The sea economy right now With the industries that already exist There
5: um, Thanks Benjamin, I mean I think for uh, So South Africa Is embarking on this um, Operation Perkisa which is meant to unlock um, The ocean economy Now as part of that process There is a um, Marine Protection and Governance Lab, and that process is meant to essentially create safeguards and protection for marine ecosystems as part of this economic development process. Now, seabed mining is not part of Pekisa, but it also completely conflicts with a, ra- a range of um, of initiatives within this marine protection lab. So, for instance, it, um, the prospecting areas overlap with um, proposed marine protected areas, it's it, overlaps with uh, critically endangered ecosystems and it overlaps with a range of other um, uh, it conflicts with a range of other um, uh, uh, existing interests including fisheries including tourism mm-hmm. um, and I mean it's, it's completely incompatible with a range of other uses so so for me it will it could negatively impact on existing jobs and this kind of ocean economic development um, uh, process. Now one of the, the labs that have recently been, been added to Operation Com- uh, perkisa is a coastal tourism um, initiative. Now, I think that this will, apart from fishing, which would have huge impacts, this would also have significant impacts on, on coastal tourism and marine tourism and research and a range of other uses. So um, I think it's completely, even in Operation perkisa there's a process called uh, marine spatial planning and a marine spatial planning initiative of seabed mining is so incompatible with many marine uses, so I just don't think it has a place um, uh, uh, in the kind of broader, sustainable ocean development uh, uh, process.
3: It comes back to the whole issue that was highlighted earlier on, and I think it comes back to that issue of getting an, a proper environmental assessment. Uh, uh, I think that's the way to go. Uh, Dr. Augustine, your thoughts there?
2: Absolutely. no, I agree completely with Saul that that is actually what is required. It needs to be very detailed. It needs to have proper um, data collection and, and uh, scientific analysis criteria. Um, and it needs to satisfy, you know, the standards for these types of assessments. And it must be made available to all the stakeholders and to the public to read so that it's clear what the impacts are but further than that, um, the so-called benefits from this type of mining need to be made clear. You know, There's no information about how many jobs might be created with this mining. There's no information about how much uh, the country would actually benefit from it directly. Um, and so, you know, these, these, this information aspect is what needs to get out. But we also need to do the assessments, the, the uh, environmental assessments. So that we're very clear about the impact.
3: Yeah, well, that's how we're going to wrap it up. Thank you both for giving us your time. We have to speak to you again because we need to get the Department of Mineral Resources of South Africa into this conversation, get some form of conversation taking place on air. And I think that we need to do a follow-up on this big story. I think it is a big story. It's still underground right now, but I think the more we talk about it, the bigger it's going to become because we need to find out what's happening in terms of implications of this particular method of mining. But thank you to Soler who is the legal Comp- campaigner in the mining program at the Center for Environmental Rights. Thank you as well to Dr. Johan Augustine, the Secretary of the South African Deep Sea Trolling Industry Association. Thank you both for giving us your time.
5: Thank you, Benjamin. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you very much.
3: Great. We definitely have to follow that up because there seems to be a bigger conversation that we are supposed to be having. But hey, we always want to have the government also having its say. So we'll invite the Department of Mineral Resources to respond to some of these concerns made by uh, this particular coalition, also made by uh, environmental organizations. Let's move on quickly and get our economics update. We're signing my back with us. So it's great to have him in studio.
6: Thanks, Benjamin. Toyota says it will be wrong for diesel use uh, to fall as a result of uh, Volkswagen's emission scandal. The carmaker says it will continue to use diesel engines in the vehicles where appropriate, such as in trucks. Tabi Sulihuku reports.
0: In fact, Africa is the second fastest reforming region of the world. Governments. Toyota President Akio Toyoda says that diesel has its merits, and it would be wrong if the ongoing scandal led to the end of diesel use. Toyota added that he was confident Toyota could be a leader in developing advanced automated driving technology. Earlier this month, the Japanese automaker said it would aim to bring to market cars that can autonomously change lanes merge with the traffic and overtake other vehicles on highways by around 2020. Tabi Solohoku for Channel Africa in Johannesburg.
6: It's becoming much easier to do business in sub-Saharan Africa. That's according to the World Bank's newly released report. It shows that sub-Saharan African economies have quickened their pace of doing business in the last few years. The region also boasts half of the world's top 10 most improved economies. South Africa's business environment is among the best in sub-Saharan Africa. David Bridgman is the bank's practice manager for Africa.
0: In fact, Africa is the second fastest reforming region of the world. Governments in sub-Saharan Africa are becoming much more business friendly. And if we look at the overall indicators over time, the the average in sub-Saharan Africa compared to the average, say, in OECD countries, it's got a lot closer, like 25 percent closer.
6: An Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam Desalagin as to open the Economist Event Ethiopia Summit on the country's capital, Addis Ababa. The Prime Minister is scheduled to speak on both Wednesday and Thursday. Homo Tomopoulan has more.
4: Having wrapped up its five-year growth and transformation plan that saw agricultural exports grow by 9% in the first three-quarter of 2013-2014 and the manufacturing sector grow by 11.4% in the same period, Ethiopia is now launching its second five-year plan. The Ethiopia Summit will be taking place at the option time to explore what more can be done to help the country achieve its full potential in alignment with its solid economic growth.
6: Egypt Air is in final stages of launching an overhaul and expansion plan that will reverse its downturn and propel it towards growth. Chief Executive Sheriff Fatih Atiya says they are developing a 10-year restructuring plan, which should be finalized by mid-December. The plan includes a network and fleet expansion. The airline could uh, place aircraft orders in the first quarter, of 2016. The South African pork producer says it's still uh, analyzing the report that the World Health Organization has issued linking red and processed meat to cancer. On Monday, the WHO's research wing, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, said the consumption of red meat and some processed meat caused colon pancreatic and prostate cancers in human beings. Financial indicators say the U.S. dollar trading 13.66 South African rents at 10.37 Botswana Pula and at 12.11 against the Zambian kwacha, also at 0.65 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. We look now at uh, commodities, gold at $1, $1,166, platinum $989, a fine ounce a Brent crude oil is at $46.58 per barrel, and that's how it's looking.
3: Now we move on to our sports figure Linguatis with us.
1: Now, sports update this hour we're kicking off with football news south African billionaire to on tuesday briefed the media on how he's going to restore and rebuild the damaged image of world soccer's governing body fifa this after he confirmed he was standing for the presidency of fifa for february 28 26 another vote next year sehwale met with kev president who's also fifa acting president isa Hayato on tuesday night to outline his vision Sikwale says he wants to repair the severely undermined FIFA brand. FIFA, the organization of the beautiful game, is damaged. The brand is severely undermined.
5: I have been with FIFA in football for nine years. And I want to clarify this point just in case there are doubts in your minds. Because people may have their own ideas because, ah, Tokyo is coming. He's not from football. I am football. I am from football. FIFA is broken and what is broken is the administration of FIFA. Now for me, that's cakewalk. That's the easiest thing that I know, administration, to run organizations whose budgets and finances are far 10, 20 times bigger than FIFA. FIFA doesn't have money, but I've administered organizations, banks, mining companies, far larger than FIFA, both in the country and
1: abroad, listed companies. South Africa, Australia, New York, Stock Exchange, and London. The South African Football Association CEO Dennis Mamble says the association has seriously considered unveiling Senzo Meyua statue in Guazuru Natal. This almost a year after the Bafana Bafana captain was gunned down at his girlfriend's home in Foslores when a man demanded his cell phone and opened fire. Dennis Mamble says they are working tirelessly with provincial government of Guazuru Natal to provide a space where they can put the statue of Senzo Meyua. Mumble gives more clarity. Uh
6: we've had discussions with uh with colleagues and, and others uh that we we need to look at a site in KwaZulu Natal in Durban uh, in particular uh which is his hometown and where he is buried and that it would be more uh, it have greater symbolism uh, there rather than in Johannesburg. So we had to kind of of turn around and and now uh, uh move toward uh, establishing something in durban
1: former cameroon and barcelona and forward samuel eto will be among a fifa team led by football well governing body's chief medical officer professor jiri Dvorak to visit sierra leone this october according to the sierra leone football association slfa the cameroonian superstar will promote the fifa 11 for health program an important FIFA campaign that seeks to inspire healthy lifestyles through football and education for girls and boys. SLFA says the FIFA 11 for Health program embraces the power of football and scientific research to inspire a healthier world and better health among young people so that they can live life to the full slfa also says it provides guidance to help tackle the most frequent causes of diseases such as hiv aids tuberculosis malaria diabetes and obesity the FIFA delegation and eto will be conducting site visits to communities affected by ebola and evaluate the effectiveness of the emergency campaign 11 against ebola in rugby news springbok assistant coach john mcfarland says there is enough motivation for the Springboks to play in the Rugby World Cup third, fourth play, playoff against Argentina on Friday at the Olympic Stadium. Even though the Springbok failed in their bid to play in the final and win, McFarlane says the next best thing is to beat Argentina and finish in third place. There's a need for the players to be focused and there's a need for the players to really come out and treat it like a normal test
2: game. Argentina is certainly a team. If, if you turn up without the right attitude against Argentina, then they will, they, will, they will punish you. And for us, it's, you know, it's the last test of the year. I'm looking forward to, to Friday night. I think it'd be, you know, it's, if we can put it on, uh, the icing on the cake, it's not the final, which we all hoped for. We've put our heart and souls into the last six months with the box. Right back from the start of the year, we've, we've given everything and the players have given everything. We couldn't have asked them more. So for us, you know, third would be acceptable.
1: And finally with golf news the european tours final series starts from the 29th to the of october to the first of november at the montgomery max royal in Belleg for the turkish airlines open here's rory Roy. more
5: concerned about form than fitness at this point fitness is totally fine so um yeah no, happy to be here and um you know health-wise i'm, I'm pretty much back to, to where i need to be and st- i've started to, to train the way I was before the injury again, and um, you know, happy about that. So, just trying to get my game back into the, the shape that I know that it can be, and um, feel like I've made a few steps in the right direction. And you know, this week's another opportunity to um, you know to see where my game is.
1: And that's your what news this hour.
3: Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us here on African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Interact with us via Facebook. We've got a Channel Africa page. Tweet us at Channel Africa 1. It's the number one at the end at Channel Africa 1 or at African Dialogue. Those are two handles. And you can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. I'll be with you in our next program, Africa Midday. So just after this program, we'll move on and get our news on what's happening here on the continent of Africa.